This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, good evening. My name is Susan Derwin, and I am the director of the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center at UC Santa Barbara. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's event, which is co-presented by the Writing Program and the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center as part of the Diana and Simon Robb Writer-in-Residence Program. This is the second year of the program, whose concept and spirit reflect Diana Robb's commitment to educating students in the practice of writing. To this end, while they are at UCSB, Diana and Simon Robb Writers-in-Residence give public readings like tonight's event and also meet with students to discuss their approach to the writing process. Diana Robb is herself an award-winning author. She has published eight books, including Healing with Words, A Writer's Cancer Journey, and Regina's Closet, Finding My Grandmother's Secret Journal. Diana has also edited two anthologies, Writers on the Edge, about addiction and dependency, and Writers in Their Notebooks. And her most recent volume of poetry, Lust, appeared last year. So on behalf of the campus, I would like to express our gratitude to Diana and Simon Robb, for enabling the university community and especially our students to engage with some of the very finest writers of fiction and nonfiction today. Thank you. We are honored to have Lydia Davis with us this evening as the 2015 Diana and Simon Robb Writer-in-Residence. Lydia Davis is a fiction writer who has published 10 story collections, including Almost No Memory, Samuel Johnson is Indignant, Varieties of Disturbance, and this year, Can't and Won't. Davis published a novel called The End of the Story, and in 2009, her collected stories appeared. Davis is also a renowned translator of literature and philosophy. Her first book-length co-translation was of Arabs and Israelis, A Dialogue, by Saul Friedlander and Mahmoud Hussein. Subsequently, she translated more than 30 book-length texts of literature and philosophy from the French, including Flaubert's Madame Bovary, Proust's Swan's Way, the autobiography of writer and anthropologist Michel Léry, Philosopher and critic, excuse me, uh, seven works by the writer, philosopher, and critic Maurice Blanchot. In the process of translating Blanchot, Davis commented that she, quote, learned to stay extremely close to the text, practicing an extreme fidelity. Davis has also translated works from other languages, including more than 50 very short stories by the Dutch writer A.L. Snaders. Davis has held teaching appointments at Bard College, Columbia University School of General Studies, and UC San Diego. Presently, she is professor at SUNY Albany, where she teaches fiction writing. In 1999, in recognition of her achievements as a translator, the French government named Davis a Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters. And this past January, she was promoted to Officer of the Order of Arts and Letters. 
She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and she has been a fellow at New York State Writers Institute at Albany. In 2003, she was awarded, awarded a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. In making the award, the foundation praised Davis's work for showing, quote, how language itself can entertain, <clears throat> how all that one word says and leaves unsaid can hold a reader's interest. In 2013, Davis was awarded the Man Booker International Prize for her body of work. Sir Christopher Ricks, chair, chairman of the judges, commented that David's, Davis's writings, quote, fling their lithe arms wide to embrace many a kind. Just how to categorize them? They have been called stories, but could equally be miniatures, anecdotes, essays, jokes, parables, fables, texts, aphorisms, even apothems, prayers, or simply observations. Davis shares with Flaubert recognition of the double-barreled ability of language to represent and also to misrepresent reality. One of the most famous passages from Madame Bovary reads, human speech is like a cracked kettle on which we beat out tunes for bears to dance to when we long to move the stars to pity. The incommensurability of human speech and feeling only spurred Flaubert on. As Davis notes in her translator's introduction, quote, what he is trying to achieve in this book is a style that is clear and direct, economical and precise, and at the same time, rhythmic, sonorous, musical, and as smooth as marble on the surface. As you listen to Lydia Davis read from her newest collection of stories, Can't and Won't, keep in mind her comments about Flaubert's prose. As I think you will see, the crystalline style of her own writing exposes depth in detail and reveals complex human behaviors with simplicity and a precision that would leave even dancing bears breathless. Please help me welcome Lydia Davis. Thank you, Susan, for that introduction. Very nice. Thank you, Diana and Simon, for inviting me here. Um, I'm going to read tonight from from Can't and Won't, the most recent collection, and then I will read some new stories. So I, I think of Can't and Won't, even though it's quite a recent connect collection as having the older stories in it now. Um, I just flew here this afternoon from JFK, so if I seem a little disoriented, I am. <laughs> after much difficulty getting a flight, because it's, you wouldn't know it here, but in the east it's there are piles of snow and sleet and freezing rain. And luckily I like all that. So the stories in, all, all the stories in all my collections have been, they're, they're very various. They're um, a, a real mix of different kinds of stories. And the recent 
most recent book is even more of a mix. Uh, I think it's 122 little stories, although some are not so little. Some are actually quite long and and tedious. But and then on the rest are little. But um, so I don't. When I write them, I don't sort of usually don't say, "Okay, I'm going to do a set of this kind and a set of that kind." But um, I did a little bit more in this in this book. Um, because I got interested in one kind of challenge and then another kind of challenge. So I would try to see how they played out and what I could do with them. But I'm going to start with um, a few that are, in my mind, to my mind, I think of them as the everyday sorts of stories or stories about everyday life. And they weren't written as a, as a set, really. But it's something I like to do, and I... I do it also with the new stories I'm going to read that I like to just listen to stories people tell and then tell me and see if I can shape them into a little complete story. So um, I'll read about five of those to begin with. Not not necessarily all taken from other people's stories, but uh, stories from daily life. The first is called a story of stolen salamis. My son's Italian landlord in Brooklyn kept a shed out back in which he cured and smoked salamis. One night, in the midst of a wave of petty vandalism and theft, the shed was broken into and the salamis were taken. My son talked to his landlord about it the next day, commiserating over the vanished sausages. The landlord was resigned and philosophical, but corrected him. They were not sausages, they were salamis. (laughs) Then the incident was written up in one of the city's more prominent magazines as an amusing and colorful urban incident. In the article, the reporter called the stolen goods sausages. My son showed the article to his landlord, who hadn't known about it. The landlord was interested and pleased that the magazine had seen fit to report the incident, but he added they weren't sausages, they were salamis. The dog hair. The dog is gone. We miss him. When the doorbell rings, no one barks. When we come home late, there is no one waiting for us. We still find his white hairs here and there around the house and on our clothes. We pick them up. We should throw them away, but they are all we have left of him. We don't throw them away. We have a wild hope. If only we collect enough of them, we will be able to put the dog back together again. Circular story. On Wednesday mornings early, there is always a racket out there on the road. It wakes me up, and I always wonder what it is. It is always the trash collection truck picking up the trash. The truck comes every Wednesday morning early. It always wakes me up. I always wonder what it is. (laughs) My sister in the Queen of England. For 50 years now, nag, 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 and harp, 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 
No matter what my sister did, it wasn't good enough for my mother or for my father either. She moved to England to get away and married an Englishman. And when he died, she married another Englishman. But that wasn't enough. Then she was awarded the Order of the British Empire. My parents flew over to England and watched from across the ballroom floor as my sister walked out there alone and stood and talked to the Queen of England. They were impressed. My mother told me in a letter that no one else receiving honors that day talked to the Queen as long as my sister did. I wasn't surprised because my sister has always been a great talker, no matter what the occasion. But when I asked my mother later what my sister was wearing, she didn't remember very well. White gloves and some kind of a tent, she said. (laughs) Four lords of parliament had mentioned my sister in their maiden speeches because she had done so much for the disabled, and she treated the disabled, my mother said, like anyone else. She talked to her drivers the same way she talked to the lords, and she talked to the lords the same way she talked to the disabled. Everyone loved her, and no one minded that her house was a little untidy. My mother said the house was still untidy, and my sister was still letting her figure go. She invited too many people into her home, and she left the butter out all day. She told too much of her private business to her friend, the Indian grocer on the corner, and she wouldn't stop talking. But my mother and father felt they had to keep quiet because how could they say anything against her now? She had done so much good and was so admired. I'm proud of my sister, and I'm happy for her because of the award, but I'm also happy that my mother and father have finally been silenced for a while and will let her alone for a while, though I don't think it will be for long, and I'm sorry it took the Queen of England to do it. And one more called Negative Emotions. A well-meaning teacher inspired by a text he had been reading once sent all the other teachers in his school a message about negative emotions. The message consisted entirely of advice quoted from a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Emotion, said the monk, is like a storm. It stays for a while and then it goes. Upon perceiving the emotion like a coming storm, one should put oneself in a stable position. One should sit or lie down. One should focus on one's abdomen. One should focus specifically on the area just below one's navel and practice mindful breathing. If one can identify the emotion as an emotion, it may then be easier to handle. The other teachers were puzzled. They did not understand why their colleague had sent them a message about negative emotions. They resented the message, and they resented their colleague. (coughs) They thought he was accusing them of having negative emotions and needing advice about how to handle them. Some of them were, in fact, angry. The teachers did not choose to regard their anger as a coming storm. They did not focus on their abdomens. They did not focus on the area just below their navels. Instead, they wrote back immediately, declaring that because they did not understand why he had sent it, 
His message had filled them with negative emotions. <laughs> they told him that it would take a lot of practice for them to get over the negative emotions caused by his message. But, they went on, they did not intend to do this practice. Far from being troubled by their negative emotions, they said, they in fact liked having negative emotions, particularly about him and his message. (laughs) I'm going to next read a few stories from... uh, what did turn out to be a set of stories. When I was translating Madame Bovary, I was reading Flaubert's letters to his lover, Louise Collet, who's a poet. And he tended to write to her after the day's work was done. And I don't know how he had the energy, because he did work hard at the at the novel all day, but then at one in the morning he would write a long, long letter to her. Um, And often in these letters he would tell a little story. And I began to look forward to the little stories and realize that they would be coming along. Just He would just be recounting something to her that had happened um, in his life that day or the day before. And since some of the other material in the letter, letters wasn't so interesting to me about, say, literary squabbles in Paris or something between writers I didn't know um, and other parts of the letters would be very interesting. They'd be about Madame Bovary and the writing of it, which was what I was reading them for. Um, but these little stories were quite different. They were like a little breath of fresh air coming along. So then I decided to take them out. I thought they were sort of lost and wasted where they were. I would take them out and shape them. I wouldn't translate them absolutely faithfully, but shape them uh, into what I felt were complete stories. I didn't, I tried not to add anything out of character or add much, you know, add more than I had to, in fact. So, um, just made small changes. The first one is called The Cook's Lesson. Today I have learned a great lesson. Our cook was my teacher. She's 25 years old and she's French. I discovered when I asked her that she did not know that Louis Philippe is no longer king of France and we now have a republic. And yet it has been five years since he left the throne. She said the fact that he is no longer king simply does not interest her in the least. Those were her words. And I think of myself as an intelligent man, but compared to her, I'm an imbecile. (laughs) This is a longer one. It's called After You Left, and the Louis in in the story is his his old friend from childhood till death. It's a long-standing old friend and companion. You wanted me to tell you everything I did after we left each other. Well, I was very sad. It had been so lovely. When I saw your back disappear into the train compartment, I went up on the bridge to watch your train pass under me. 
That was all I saw. You were inside it. I looked after it as long as I could, and I listened to it. In the other direction, towards Rouen, the sky was red and striped with broad bands of purple. The sky would be long, dark by the time I reached Rouen and you reached Paris. I lit another cigar. For a while, I paced back and forth. Then, because I felt so numb and tired, I went into a cafe across the street and drank a glass of Kirsch. My train came into the station heading in the opposite direction from yours. In the compartment, I met a man I knew from my school days. We talked for a long time, almost all the way back to Rouen. When I arrived, Louis was there to meet me as we had planned, but my mother hadn't sent the carriage to take us home. We waited for a while, and then by moonlight, we walked across the bridge and through the port. In that part of town, there were two places where we could hire a hackney cab. At the second place, the people live in an old church. It was dark. We knocked and woke the woman who came to the door in her nightcap. Imagine the scene in the middle of the night with the interior of that old church behind her, her jaws gaping in a yawn, a candle burning, the lace shawl she wore hanging down below her hips. The horse had to be harnessed, of course. The breaching band had broken, and we waited while they mended it with a piece of rope. On the way home, I told Louis about my old school friend, who is his old school friend, too. I told him how you and I had spent our time together. Out the window, the moon was shining on the river. I remembered another journey home late at night by moonlight. I described it to Louis. There was deep snow on the ground. I was in a sleigh wearing my red wool hat and wrapped in my fur cloak. I had lost my boots that day on my way to see an exhibition of savages from Africa. All windows were open and I was smoking my pipe. The river was dark. The trees were dark. The moon shone on the fields of snow. They looked as smooth as satin. The snow-covered houses looked like little white bears curled up asleep. I imagined that I was in the Russian steppe. I thought I could hear reindeers snorting in the mist. I thought I could hear, I thought I could see a pack of wolves leaping up at the back of the sleigh. The eyes of the wolves were shining like coals on both sides of the road. When at last we reached home, it was one in the morning. I wanted to organize my work table before I went to bed. Out my study window, the moon was still shining. On the water, on the towpath, and close to the house on the tulip tree by my window. When I was done, Louis went off to his room, and I went off to mine. Now, in, in that one, I did more than I did in many of the others. I combined two letters, because he actually wrote to her twice, once about uh, going to the church and hiring a hackney cab, and the other time he wrote to her about going home in the winter in the sleigh and imagining the Russian steppe. So I combined them together. And I also like the way the many layers of um, through the, the many layers between what he wrote he's writing to her and he's reporting and then I'm making it into a story and then and then I'm putting the second story for the second story from the letter with, 
within the first, but then within the second story, he's imagining something completely different, the Russian step, and he's imagining the wolves. So you have all these layers, and yet when you get to the wolves, I think you still see the wolves as if they were really there. So... This is a short one called The Execution. Here is another story about our compassion. And Flaubert is very scornful about human nature, very scornful of human nature, so he's being ironical. Here is another story about our compassion. In a village not far from here, a young man murdered a banker and his wife, then raped the servant girl and drank all the wine in the cellar. He was tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, and executed. Well, there was such interest in seeing this peculiar fellow die on the guillotine that people came from all over the countryside the night before, more than 10,000 of them. There were such crowds that the bakeries ran out of bread, and because the inns were full, people spent the night outside. To see this man die, they slept in the snow. And we shake our heads over the Roman gladiators. Oh, charlatans. And the last is called the chairs. Louis has been in the church in Mont looking at the chairs. He has been looking at them very closely. He wants to learn as much as he can about the people from looking at their chairs, he says. He started with the chair of a woman he calls Madame Fricotte. Maybe her name was written on the back of the chair. She must be very stout, he says. The seat of the chair has a deep hollow in it, and the prayer stool has been reinforced in a couple of places. Her husband may be a rich man because the prayer stool is upholstered in red velvet with brass tacks. Or he thinks the woman may be the widow of a rich man because there is no chair belonging to Monsieur Fricotte, unless he's an atheist. In fact, perhaps Madame Fricotte, if she is a widow, is looking for another husband, since the back of her chair is heavily stained with hair dye. <laughs> I thought that was a very peculiarly modern little, little story. The next is a set of dream pieces. Um, Again, I I got interested in not so much um, dreams as sort of um, good uh, material for psychological analysis and self-study and so on, but dreams as possible stories. You know, how could you... Unlike the long, rambling dream you tell someone that they don't want to hear that is not interesting to them, how could you shape, how could you take some of the content of of a dream and shape it so that it was sort of coherent? And then the other side of that, how could you take uh, an incident in waking life and tell it so that it sounds like a dream? So again, just select from the incident in your waking life so that it, uh, I guess you bring out the less uh, 
expected or rational parts of it, the more, the stranger parts of it, and then and shape that. And so I've, I've mixed them up in the books so you don't necessarily know which is a real dream and which isn't. The first is called Awake in the Night. I can't go to sleep in this hotel room in this strange city. It is very late, two in the morning, then three, then four. I am lying in the dark. What is the problem? Oh, maybe I am missing him, the person I sleep next to. Then I hear a door shut somewhere nearby. Another guest has come in very late. Now I have the answer. I will go to his room and get in bed next to him, and then I will be able to sleep. The child. She is bending over her child. She can't leave her. The child is laid out in state on a table. She wants to take one more photograph of the child, probably the last. In life, the child would never sit still for a photograph. She says to herself, I'm going to get the camera, as if saying to the child, don't move. In the train station. The train station is very crowded. People are walking in every direction at once, though some are standing still. A Tibetan Buddhist monk with shaved head and long wine-colored robe is in the crowd looking worried. I am standing still watching him. I have plenty of time before my train leaves because I have just missed a train. The monk sees me watching him. He comes up to me and tells me he is looking for track number three. I know where the tracks are. I show him the way. The piano. We are about to buy a new piano. Our old upright has a crack all the way through the sounding board and other problems. We would like the piano shop to take it and resell it, but they tell us it is too badly damaged and cannot be resold to anyone else. They say it will have to be pushed over a cliff. (laughs) This is how they will do it. Two truck drivers take it to a remote spot. One driver walks away down the lane with his back turned, while the other shoves it over the cliff. And the last one, two characters in a paragraph. The story is only two paragraphs long. I'm working on the end of the second paragraph, which is the end of the story. I'm intent on this work, and my back is turned. And while I'm working on the end, look what they're up to in the beginning. And they're not very far away. He seems to have drifted from where I put him and is hovering over her only one paragraph away in the first paragraph. True, it is a dense paragraph, and they're in the very middle of it, and it's dark in there. I knew they were both in there, but when I left it and turned to the second paragraph, there wasn't anything going on between them. Now look. And I'll read uh, just one of 
five letters of complaint that are in this book. I got interested in that form when I wrote a letter to a funeral parlor complaining about the word cremains. And although I started the letter very sincerely, it turned into something too literary to send. (laughs) It kind of took off on its own. And then I realized that I enjoyed that form and that I had a lot to complain about. (laughs) So I, I wrote a few other letters of complaint. So they actually became the way I organized this these too many stories in this one volume by giving dividing it into five sections and giving each section one letter of complaint then it became easier to divide all the other stories up so this one is called letter to a frozen peas manufacturer <laughs> dear frozen peas manufacturer We are writing to you because we feel that the peas illustrated on your package of frozen peas are a most unattractive color. We are referring to the 16-ounce plastic package that shows three or four pods, one of them split open, with peas rolling out near them. The peas are a dull yellow-green, more the color of pea soup than fresh peas, and nothing like the actual color of your peas, which are a nice, bright, dark green. The depicted peas are, moreover, about three times the size of the actual peas inside the package, which, together with their dull color, makes them even less appealing. They appear to be past their maturity and mealy in texture. Additionally, the color of your illustrated peas contrasts poorly with the color of the lettering and other decoration on your package, which is an almost harsh neon green. We have compared your depiction of peas to that of other frozen peas packages, and yours is by far the least appealing. (laughs) Most food manufacturers depict food on their packaging that is more attractive than the food inside, and therefore deceptive. You are doing the opposite. (laughs) You are falsely representing your peas as less attractive than they actually are. We enjoy your peas and do not want your business to suffer. Please reconsider your art. Yours sincerely. Now I'll come back to that book at the end with the very, very short ones, but I'll read a few of the new ones. And the new ones were written more in the last few months, and I was working on some long essays and not writing a lot of stories, but I began to miss writing stories particularly, so I began taking stories from from the people around me. So they're not all, they're not all... Um, taken that way but a lot of them are so the first is called unhappy Christmas tree an old woman believes that her Christmas tree wants to get married her caretaker says no it's just a tree see come here feel it the old woman feels a branch 
oh, you're right, it is a tree. But the old woman is still worried. But inside, inside there's a woman who wants to come out and get married. The old woman will not be convinced she is wrong. She sits for an hour staring at the tree. After an hour, the caretaker says, Come on, don't worry, it's only a tree. But it's so sad, it's so sad for her with those little things all over her. Are they little men? No, don't worry, they're not little men. Those are your ornaments. You've had them for years. Every year we take them out and hang them on the tree. But they're hurting her. They're pinching her. She just wants to come out and get married. Uh, These are a few train stories before we get back to the community stories. Overheard on the train, says one old lady to another, everything gets worse. Does anything get better? Those two loud women. Those two loud women. If they're going to talk so loudly and so constantly near me on the train, they could at least have an interesting conversation one that I would like to overhear. That obnoxious man. That obnoxious man. I saw him on the train the other day, and I knew who he was, but I couldn't remember his name. I kept thinking about him after that, trying to remember his name. He was so obnoxious long ago when I knew him. By now, his hair is white, but he still has that way of staring straight at you like a frightened rabbit with his eyes bugging out. I am on the train again today, and I wish he would get on. Then I would ask him what his name was. Maybe after that I could stop thinking about him. The beginning of this, that obnoxious man, made me think of a poem by Lorene Niedeker. Or else it was the other way around, and it was because of the Lorene Niedeker poem that I began it that way. Her poem goes, The Museum Man. I wish he'd take Pa's spit box. I'm going to take that spit box out and bury it on the ground, in the ground, and put a stone on top. Because without that stone on top, it would come back. Actually, it probably worked both ways. I began the story with those words because somewhere in my memory was the Niedeker poem. Then, when I looked at my story, it reminded me of the poem. Now I might rewrite my story to look a little more like her poem. That obnoxious man. I saw him on the train, and I knew exactly who he was from long ago. But I couldn't remember his name. Oh, I wish he'd get on the train again so I could ask his name. Then I could bury him and put a stone on top. (laughs) I still can't remember his name. They say that you write to get rid of emotions or get rid of the problems or get rid of things, but I find that that doesn't work. You, You put it in a, you write to put it in a form that pleases you, but you haven't necessarily gotten rid of it. This one's called Conversation at Noisy Party on Snowy Winter Afternoon in Country. 
airline pilot. I found a very small owl by the road, this big. He holds his hand, hands eight inches apart. It was very beautiful, perfect. Birder is quick to respond. So what? Pilot is puzzled. He thought she would be interested. So what, he says. Birder laughs. Others are there listening. They laugh. No, I said saw wet. I'd have to look in the book, but I think it's a saw wet. He is still puzzled. What? A saw wet. S-A-W-W-H-E-T. Oh, I thought it might be a screech owl. It might be. I'd have to look in the book. They're small too, aren't they? Yes, they're very small. They're very small, but they make a very loud noise. It has no blood on it. I think it must have been hit by a car. The others nod. It must have broken its neck. The others nod again. I can give it to you if you want. Sure, I'll put it in my freezer. He laughs. They laugh. Birder goes on. I once had a weasel in my freezer. He laughs again. They all laugh again. It was in my freezer for two years. They all laugh again. I was waiting for John Barry to come pick it up. One woman asks, he's a taxidermist? No, he's just interested in weasels. (laughs) They wait to hear more. It was a small weasel. It was the only thing in my freezer, besides the vodka. They all laugh again. Another woman adds, well, as long as you could still get to the vodka. (laughs) Extended conversation at the Quog Long Island Wild Animal Sanctuary between elderly male visitor and disoriented resident bird with broken wing. Who? 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 another bird one. (laughs) Heron in the headlights. Last Sunday. Any, Any wildlife reports? Yes, actually. I was driving down this winding road into town and I saw a great blue heron right in the middle of the road. Pause. Was this near water? No, I couldn't see any water anywhere. There were woods on both sides of the road, right up to the road. It was very strange. What was it doing? It was just standing there. Was it eating anything off the road? No. Anyway, I think they only eat live fish. You usually see them standing in water and watching for fish. I know. What did you do? Did you stop? No, I just slowed down as I got closer. I didn't want to honk and scare it. What did it do? Well, it walked away down the road in front of me at the side of the road. It walked... Yes, I think it walked quickly. I don't think it ran. Finally, it flew up a few feet. It had huge wings, and then down into a deep ditch between the trees and the road. The ditch was very deep. I couldn't see it down there at all. I was worried about what it would do after I went by. I was worried that it would go back up into the road. I don't know what it was doing there. I've never seen them away from water. Maybe there was something wrong with it. This Sunday... 
any wildlife reports? Pause. Well, did I tell you about the heron I saw in the road? Yes, you told me about that. You could write a story about it. You could call it Heron in the Headlights. But it wasn't in my headlights. I didn't have the headlights on. It was in the daytime. Pause. I could call it Heron in the middle of the road. But that doesn't have the same alliteration. But it wasn't at night. It was in the daytime. Writers don't have to tell the truth. Well, actually, I could call it that and then say the headlights weren't actually on. (laughs) You didn't hear me. I said writers don't have to be honest. I was being provocative. That's not provocative. I mean, oh, laughs. I know writers don't have to be honest. I could call it heron in the headlights anyway and then explain that actually it was in the daytime. Gramsci. A friend is talking to her on the phone about pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. They both think that because of what she's been reading over the holidays, this may now be what she has. On a notepad while they are talking, she writes down Gramsci. After she hangs up, he comes along, glances suspiciously at the notepad, and reads the word. He is afraid her friend has been recommending an expensive line of clothes. <laughs> Who's Gramsci, he says, a designer? No, an Italian Marxist. She wants to startle him. They don't often use the word Marxist in their household. He walks away, but he is still not convinced. <laughs> A friend borrows a better shopping cart. A man who collects old televisions, old telephones, old magazines, and other old things says to his friend, oh no, don't throw them out. He's talking about a pair of very large and very old speakers. He says he will take them. He travels by subway from another part of the city, bringing with him his shopping cart. The speakers are so large that only one will fit into the shopping cart. He takes it by subway back to his apartment. He returns for the other speaker, but this time without his shopping cart. He has noticed that his friend had a better shopping cart, so he borrows that one. Does he return it right away? Yes, he returns it right away, again coming by subway. Why didn't he take them both in a cab? Well, that might have worked. They might have fit inside a cab. And he is not poor, but he won't spend any extra money if he doesn't have to. Pearl and Perline. We knew this lady named Pearl. She lived down the road from us. She was sort of a friend of the family. Pearl used to clean the house by shoving everything under the sofa and behind the sofa and under the chairs and into the closets. So in our family, whenever we had to clean up the house in a hurry for visitors, we said we were cleaning it the Pearl way. Pearl and Fred weren't able to have children, so they adopted a little girl. She was a pretty little thing. Her name was Michelle. Pearl wasn't very nice to her, the rumor was. Pearl was what we call a wet brain. She drank a lot. They both drank a lot. 
They lived out in the woods. No one could hear them if they started shouting. They ended up in the state prison and the state hospital for rehab a couple of times. I had to drive one of them to court every month for eight months. I had to take my kid along with me because I couldn't leave her home. The judge complained because we had food in the courtroom. What else was I going to do? I got along with them, but I was always walking on eggshells. How did Michelle turn out? She turned out okay. She grew up and joined the Navy. As for whatever happened to Pearl, she left Fred in the end, and guess what she did? She went off somewhere to become a belly dancer. After she left, of course, Fred needed a housekeeper. He found one, and what do you think her name was? Pearlene. That was before he got married again. Helen's father and his teeth. We never knew why he needed a two-pocket shirt. He smoked. This was in the old days. So he needed one pocket for his pack of cigarettes on the left. But he had to have a shirt with another pocket on the right. We didn't know why. The answer was it was for his teeth. He couldn't eat with his teeth in. He would take them out at the table and slip them into his pocket. We never saw him do it. We never knew. For years, he never ate with his teeth in. He was used to it. For years, he ate without any teeth at all. He could eat anything, even corn on the cob. Then he couldn't eat with his new teeth in. He tried it, and he would practically choke. It would almost make him sick. Maybe it was all in his head. He had a lot of things in his head. Recurring turnip problem. All he had had to eat for a while during the war was turnips. Now he won't eat turnips. It's the only thing he won't eat. But for years now, their old, old friends up in Canada have misunderstood this. They think he likes turnips, maybe even loves turnips. So every Thanksgiving, which they always celebrate together, they make turnips for him. And every Thanksgiving, he eats them. Interesting vegetables. In Indonesia years ago, domestic servants collected and saved discarded pieces of paper from the household. They would make little bundles of them and sell them to market vendors for wrapping their produce. Among the odd pieces of paper would sometimes be blue aerogram letters. And so sometimes your bawang mera or your kunsi would come home wrapped in someone else's personal letter. I'm going to read two very short ones and then read more very short ones from, from the book. And... These I began writing when I was translating Proust. So I was working for many hours in the day at reconstructing in English Proust's long, long, complex, um, multi-clause sentences. And then in reaction, I guess I have to think, I started writing stories that had to be just as short as it could possibly be. And uh, 
I liked that. So I'll read two, these two, and then I'll go read a few more from the book. Two drunks at dinner time. She was drunk cooking dinner and burned everything. He was drunk eating it and didn't care. <laughs> England. My left hand keeps trying to type another E into the word acknowledgement, the British spelling, while my right hand keeps deleting it. Maybe my left hand grew up in England. (laughs) Bloomington. Now that I've been here for a little while, I can say with confidence that I've never been here before. (laughs) Contingency versus necessity. He could be our dog, but he is not our dog, so he barks at us. Contingency versus necessity, too, on vacation. He could be my husband, but he is not my husband. He is her husband. And so he takes her picture, not mine, as she stands in her flowered beach outfit in front of the old fortress. Can't and won't. I was recently denied a writing prize because they said I was lazy. What they meant by lazy was that I used too many contractions. For instance, I would not write out in full the words cannot and will not, but instead contracted them to can't and won't. Her geography, Alabama. She thinks for a moment that Alabama is a city in Georgia. It is called Georgia, Alabama. The language of the telephone company. The trouble you reported recently is now working properly. her geography, Illinois. She knows she is in Chicago, but she does not yet realize that she is in Illinois. Her birthday. 105 years old. She wouldn't be alive today even if she hadn't died. (laughs) and the last one PhD all these years I thought I had a PhD but I do not have a PhD thank you 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.